Bourbon is America's only native spirit. 95% of it is made in Kentucky, and 100% of the good stuff is made in Kentucky. And that's because of the farmers. That's because of the corn. You know, our spec is number two corn, but we get number one corn because that's what they make. So uh, we've just got some superstar farmers. Hello and welcome to Wherever John May Roam, a National Corn Growers Association podcast. This is where leaders, growers, and stakeholders in the corn industry can turn for big-picture conversations about the state of the industry and its future. I'm Dusty Weiss, and I'll be introducing your host, Association CEO John Doggett. You can join John every month as he travels the country on a mission to advocate for America's corn farmers. From the fields of the Corn Belt to the D.C. Beltway, we'll make sure that the growers who feed America have a say in the issues that are important to them with key leaders who are shaping the future of agriculture. Bourbon is a uniquely American beverage. Not only is its heritage deeply rooted in early Appalachian history, but up to two and a half pounds of corn go into every bottle that's distilled. And so in this episode of the podcast, we're going on the road with John as he pays a visit to the Fraser, Kentucky History Museum in Louisville. There, in the midst of the exhibit on bourbon, we'll hear from an eighth-generation master distiller and explore how the corn industry and bourbon can celebrate their shared history together. But if you haven't yet, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and your favorite app. Also, make sure you follow the NCGA on Twitter, at National Corn, and sign up for the National Corn Growers Association newsletter at ncga.com. And with that, it's time to once again introduce John. John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. And John, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the many different uses for corn. I don't think that there's corn product that gets people quite as fired up as good old-fashioned American bourbon. Certainly, it's a topic that I've been looking forward to covering since we launched the show. Well, you know, it's taken us a while to get here. COVID has delayed everything for everybody. But, you know, when you come to Kentucky, you think about Kentucky basketball. You think about horses. And we're here today to talk about the thing people probably most readily identify that's a part of Kentucky, and that's bourbon. I can't imagine a better place to have this podcast than here in the heart of bourbon country in Kentucky. And we are in Louisville, and we are at the Museum of Bourbon. And we have our first guest, museum president and CEO, Annie Trinan, who also creates and hosts much of the museum's bourbon-related programming. And Andy, I understand this beautiful museum is the first stop on the bourbon trail. Well, first of all, welcome. Great to have all of you here. The Fraser History Museum is where the world meets Kentucky, and Kentucky is all about bourbon. We're also the official starting point of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, and that means basically three things. Number one, we have a concierge service downstairs in our welcome center, and it is to help people manage their Kentucky Bourbon Trail experience because there are so many distillers, and there's a lot of time and a lot of money that can be spent, so we really help to curate everyone's experience. The second thing is this gorgeous multi-million dollar bourbon exhibit that we're sitting in right here, and it's about the category of bourbon and why Kentucky owns bourbon, why 95% of the bourbon in the world is made here in Kentucky. And then the third thing is that bourbon programming where I get to host different master distillers from all the different brands, and we taste things that people normally don't get an opportunity to taste, and we tell stories kind of like this, kind of behind the curtain, kind of some things that people don't normally get to hear. And also joining us today from Owensboro, Kentucky, is Jacob Call. He is the master distiller at Green River Distilling. That's the fourth largest independent bourbon distillery in the world. 
And I would guess you know a little bit about distilling because it's been in your family for a long, long time. Tell us about that, Jacob, and tell us about what you do at Green River. Well, thank you all for having me on the show today. It's a uh, privilege to be here. So yeah, I am the uh, master distiller and general manager for the Green River Distillery down in Owensboro, Kentucky. My family's been in the bourbon business for a very long time. We actually date back to 1791, back in Bourbon County, Kentucky. So, yep, we uh, we know a little bit about making bourbon down in Owensboro. You know, I always like talking to folks who have been in a profession or an industry for a number of generations because that's so important to our farmers. You talk to a farmer and they'll say, I'm a third generation farmer, fifth generation farmer, whatever. So thank you for doing that because, you know, it's just so neat that people pick up on something and it becomes an integral part of not only their life, but the life of their family. So thanks so much for being here. Look forward to the conversation. And finally, representing the interest of the growers who power this industry in this great state, Executive Director of the Kentucky Corn Growers, Laura Noth, and Adam Andrews, the Program Director. Welcome Thanks so much. And this is just a neat thing. Tell us about Kentucky corn. Tell us about your involvement in the bourbon business, not just on the consumption side. And then tell us a little bit about how have you got involved in this museum? Absolutely. Thank you, John. We're so glad to have you all here talking about one of our favorite uses for corn and especially Kentucky corn. It's such a unique market for our growers and we've been excited to be participants with the majority of our distilleries here in the state, obviously supplying them with the corn that they need for what we consider to be one of the finest products made from corn. Our history of bourbon is uh, so special here and we have enjoyed our relationship with the Fraser History Museum as they built this program, this project that talks about Kentucky agriculture and Kentucky bourbon. We were proud to partner with them because they highlighted the real nature of the industry here in our state and the impact that it has on corn production and the economy that it creates for our state. So we were proud to partner with them and our board members that were excited. They were able to provide information about how their farms have been providing corn to the bourbon industry for generations as well. That's pretty cool. Adam? For me as well, thank you for coming down. Thank you for putting this on your tour of wherever John may roam. But I've been excited and enjoyed seeing the bourbon industry grow in Kentucky over the last decade or so. Just rickhouses popping up everywhere, direct relationships with farms and distilleries and our availability, our ability to bring bourbon to the corn pack every year and dissipate as kind of the nation's spokesperson from a corn perspective for bourbon. And it's overwhelming sometimes. Tough job, that. Tough job, tough job. But it's a very high-profile use of corn, and it's an easy way to start a good conversation with consumers and people who are interested because agriculture sometimes is losing its connection with society as we become more urban and things like that. This is still something that is easily identifiable with consumers and a great platform for good conversations. You know, that's so important. If you can have that touch point on one part of the industry – you can draw concentric circles around that and have all sorts of great conversations and discussions. By the way, before we go any further, I do have to mention that Adam and Laura and I all share a common background. We all work for Farm Bureau. They work for Kentucky Farm Bureau. I work for the American Farm Bureau. And I remember years and years and years ago, I was sent out to Kentucky and they said, you're going to go on this tour. And this young woman, I think she was just out of high school, will take you around was back in the 90s. 90s. Yeah. Yeah. Back when you graduated. 
it was one of the best weeks I had at the American Farm Bureau. We went from one end of the state to the other, and we went to your family's place, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And then, of course, after a while, then Adam showed up, and I got to know him. And so then we all went to corn together, too. It's kind of neat. Yeah. Our tenures at Farm Bureau overlapped about six months. I was National Affairs Director at Kentucky, and my first congressional tour, Laura was my boss the latter time that I was there at Farm Bureau, but first congressional tour, you were the very first update for our group, and it was on the RFS as it was just coming out in early uh, 2004. Boy, that's a long time ago. You know, John, we have yet to meet anybody in the course of this podcast that doesn't have a story like that about you, though, so they just keep coming. The nice thing about it is, so far, they have all kept the stories to be the reasonable and rational ones that I don't get embarrassed over. (laughs) All right, moving along, the common thread that is woven through all of your comments, it's a heritage here. This is a heritage thing. So much of agriculture, it's heritage. It's not only what did dad do, but what did my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents do? Jacob, talk about what does it not only mean to your family, but where do you see that replicated with other people in the industry? And how important is that to your connection with with consumers? Yeah, I mean, you know, we take a lot of pride being from Kentucky, being an eighth generation Kentuckian and also, you know, an eighth generation farmer myself in Kentucky. So, you know, I think a lot of the master distillers in the industry, there's just a lot of state pride that we share, good camaraderie with everyone. And we're proud to represent Kentucky to the world. We're kind of the spokespeople for this great state. So it's part of our job, we think. Being an eighth generation master distiller, was there ever any doubt in your mind growing up that that was what you're going to do? Did you ever go to your dad and be like, you know, I think I want to be a firefighter? (laughs) Well, actually, I went to Murray State down in Western Kentucky. And my first job, I was actually a banker for a while. You know, my dad was like, no, you're going to go get some other experience first. Nothing should be given in this world anyway. So first job was a banker. And, you know, I had all of the less glamorous jobs in college, worked on the bottling line and fermentation. And we had a cattle ranch. I was actually at Florida Distillers for a while. We had a cattle ranch down in Florida. I took care of all our cows and fed our byproduct to our cattle. And We can talk about that a little bit later. That's one of our other ways that we touch agriculture in Kentucky is with our byproduct. So, Andy, let's start at the beginning. Why did we start making bourbon? And why did we start making bourbon in Kentucky of all places? Well, I think, you know, you mentioned, John, that heritage. uh, We like to describe it as authenticity, right? When Congress in 1964 said that bourbon is America's only native spirit and People often say, oh, bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. Bourbon has to be made in Kentucky. And that's not true. It has to be made in America. 95% of it is made in Kentucky and 100% of the good stuff is made in Kentucky. And that's because of the farmers. That's because of the corn. And it started back, you know, there were a lot of rye distillers that came from the east and they were incentivized by government to move west and to plant corn and to build a structure. And with that, they were given 400 acres of land. Distillers generally use what product is the best in that area as the primary product in what it is that they're distilling in the state of Kentucky. That is corn. It was called the Corn Patch and Cabin Rights Act that gave folks that 400 acres when they moved to the Kentucky area that wasn't called Kentucky at the time. And they grew some corn and built a little structure. 
That's interesting. My family came from Virginia to this state about that time. Now, nobody talks about whether they made whiskey or not, but they I, were all making whiskey. I'm sure they were all making whiskey. But, but there was some policy behind it, I think, is, is the important thing. And we are rich with corn in the state of Kentucky. So continue with that, Andy. Why is it called bourbon? Well, <laughs> there are a lot of different accounts of that, and I don't know that anybody has completely nailed it. Uh, What's your favorite version of this? I think it probably comes from what was Bourbon County, which was a lot bigger than Bourbon County now, and the barrels were stamped with Bourbon County and shipped down the river and ended up in New Orleans, and people started saying, send us more of that bourbon whiskey, bourbon whiskey from Bourbon County. And after that bourbon is in the barrel and on the river for an undetermined amount of time and into and out of the wood, it gets better. You know, people love what the wood does to it. And that gives it most of its color, most of its flavor. And they were getting a product down there that was different than when it was put in the barrel here. And they desired more and they said, send us more bourbon. That's my favorite account. For the uneducated, when we're talking about bourbon, all bourbon is a whiskey, but not all whiskey is a bourbon. So what makes it a bourbon per se? Well, there are very clear definitions. First of all, it has to be made in the United States of America. It has to be distilled at no more than 160 proof. It has to be bottled at no more than 125 proof. Corn is the secret recipe, right? It has to have as a mash bill more than 51% corn, and it has to be aged in new oak barrels. Outside of those things, it is not bourbon. And there's no, obviously, and I think most of your listeners know this, but there's nothing added to bourbon. You can't add any flavor. You can't add any color. The only thing that changes the nuance of what is distilled is how long it spends in those barrels and what happens in the barrels by the variance of temperature and time. Jacob Call, master distiller at Green River Distilling. Talk about the process from the farm to the glass. Sure. So it all starts with grain. So what we do is we'll go out and we contract our corn really on an annual basis. We buy direct from the farmer under contract. Multiple farmers in our area, all Kentucky corn, very important for us to buy Kentucky corn. And we test that corn. So the trucks arrive on our site. We have grain bins. We test it for bushel weight, for moisture, foreign material, And most importantly for us, odor. We don't want any kind of off odor notes in our corn because it'll carry through the entire process. If you have musty corn, you'll have musty bourbon four or five years later. So we mill that grain. We mill it to a flour type consistency. We also use rye and malted barley in our recipes. Sometimes we use wheat. We do buy Kentucky wheat also. So from that point, we'll take that grain. We add water and we cook it. We heat it up to around 212 degrees, and that's going to break all the starch down. Then we cool it to 148, and we add our malted barley. And the malt has a natural enzyme that's going to convert the starch to sugar. At that point, we cool it again. We send it to fermentation, where we add yeast. We have a proprietary yeast blend that we use. In fermentation, uh, the yeast are going to eat the sugar. They're going to turn it into alcohol. It's going to be about an 8% alcohol beer at that point. From there, we will distill that beer. So we're going to strip the alcohol out of the grain. It'll be a, uh, it's going to ferment for about a, a three-day process. 
When we start distilling, we distill about 300 barrels a day at our facility. And uh, we go through two distillations. We do a, a first initial distillation of 120 proof and our beer still. We have a 54-inch beer still. And then from there, we distill it a second time in our copper doubler at 138 proof. From there, we cut it to uh, 120 and we barrel it at 120 proof. And then that's where it goes and soaks up some of that magical uh, Kentucky climate that uh, makes great Kentucky bourbon whiskey. And one of the things about the climate is it's cold, hot, cold, hot, makes the bourbon move around through the barrel, and that's what gives it the taste. Yeah. So in Kentucky, we have all four seasons, sometimes in the same day, it seems like. (laughs) And yeah, the bourbon is moving in and out of that barrel. The barrel acts as a filter. So all of the color from the bourbon will come from the barrel, starts out clear, and then it just gets darker as it ages in that barrel. And it ages differently on different floors or levels of your warehouse. Uh, Your upper floors get a lot hotter, so you'll have a higher proof product. It'll age a little bit faster. Your lower floors, a little bit slower uh, maturation, kind of like scotch. So your 10-year-old stuff, 18-year-old stuff will be on your lower levels generally. I didn't realize that there was a difference in where you put the barrel in the warehouse. That's cool. Yeah, there's all sorts of nuances that go into it. This is what's so great about being able to talk with folks like Jacob Call, who is a master distiller, and being able to hear him explain the magic. I mean, the bourbon trail is so fascinating because of being able to go through the distillery and see how that happens. You know, tours happen all the time, every day, and you can see that process. But to hear somebody like Jacob describe it, that's a treat. Doing a little studying before we did the podcast. It's a real, real simple, complex process. It just takes grain, water, oak barrel, little yeast, little malt barley. It's easy, but it isn't. Tale as old as time there, but Andy, before when you were describing sort of the ABCs of what constitutes a bourbon, it hasn't always been done that way. It hasn't always been so regimented. There was a time there when making bourbon in Kentucky was a little bit wild, wild west. Can you tell us about that? And how did the federal government step in and kind of intervene there to save Kentucky bourbon? Yeah, it's an interesting question because the first ever government policy on any product, any food, anything was whiskey. You know, the Bottle and Bond Act guaranteed that what you were getting was safe and what you thought you were buying. Before that, production was done into big barrels and people did all kinds of things to try to maximize their profits. So there could be tobacco juice in there. There could be different flavorings and colorings. And so the government stepped in uh, with the Bottle and Bond Act to make sure that that was a safe product and that what you bought was in a bottle. Old Forrester was the first ever to actually bottle bourbon as opposed to getting it in a jug at the saloon. I wouldn't mind getting some bourbon in a jug, to be honest. True. You just want to, through consumer protection, you want to make sure you're getting good, safe bourbon. And, you know, obviously during Prohibition, there were all kinds of, speaking of the wild, wild west, everything got to kind of cut loose again. And it, it helped to tell the story of why regulation of these products is important. Otherwise, you end up with unsafe products and people walking around with jag leg and crime. Unintended consequences of prohibition was uh, crime boosted big time. But Dusty, see me after Neil turns the cameras off. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> well, and here in the museum, you can see some examples of the older bottles and the way they looked. Andy's got a, quite a collection of some of the old stuff. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my favorite bottle in there, there's a, an old Forester bottled in 1896, and it looks like it was bottled yesterday. It is clean and looks like an outstanding product. But then there are some other ones that have turned, and there are some variances, certainly, in a lot of those bottles. But it's again, it's that authentic story and why we're sitting here in Kentucky telling this story this morning at the official starting point of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. It starts with these natural products, corn, the most important of them, and ends up with something that whether you are a consumer or whether you drink bourbon or not, uh, most people in Kentucky are proud of the fact that this is Kentucky's authentic story. Laura, you and I have talked in the past about the pride that so many of your growers have in producing corn for this industry. How has that evolved over the last 10, 15, 20 years? We were just so excited to see the growth in the bourbon industry. I mean, it has just really taken off. And like Jacob was describing, they want the best quality corn they can get to make the best quality bourbon. And so our growers, many of them have generations that have delivered direct to distilleries across the state. And they're proud of that. And it's uh, something they're proud to make sure that we produce about a million and a half acres and 200 something million bushels. About 20 million of those go to the distilling industry in this state. And we're proud of every one of them. And those farmers are too. So they know it's got to be the top quality to deliver to the distilleries. So it's a specialty market and they're proud of it. Jacob Call, tell us, what is the mash bill and how do we pay it? So the mash bill is the recipe. So it's our recipe that we use to make bourbon. As was mentioned earlier, it has to have at least 51% corn in the recipe or the mash bill. We run a variety of mash bills. Sort of our go-to is a 70% corn, 21% rye, and 9% malted barley. And uh, we, we run higher corn mash bills. We run a 78% corn. And the corn portion of that gives it a lot of the sweetness. So the sweetness from bourbon comes from the corn. The spice and the pepper notes will come from the rye. And then the malt, you'll get some of those creamier notes from the malted barley, but that's really used also as an enzyme conversion to convert that starch to sugar. So a lot of different distilleries run different mash bills, but generally speaking, they'll be in the 70% corn to 78% corn, kind of on average. So when you're at that 70, 75% corn in the mash bill, let's see, there's 53 gallons in a barrel. Yeah. How many bushel? Does that represent? It'd be about nine bushels, roughly, for a barrel, depending on the, the ratio and the mash bill. Okay. And Laura, they make the bourbon. What else do they make? And why is that important to this state? Oh, absolutely. What's great about the bourbon being a use for corn is they get the sugar and turn that into bourbon. And then the crushed grain, the spent grain, the stillage, I think some of them call it different things, but the distiller's grains are what is left from the product. They've taken all the sugar out of it, but it leaves all the protein. And all the carbs are left there for one of the best feed products that you could have. So dried distiller's grains. A lot of folks who are in the ethanol world understand that DDGs 
Well, it originally came from the bourbon industry, distillers' grains, and so that is used for livestock feed as well. One of the great things that Jacob does is he uses some of his in livestock. His operation is very diverse. The Green River Distilling Company, is they're out there. They're quite a bit on the cutting edge of a lot of production and uh, a lot of usage. So distillers' grains are an important product from the distilling industry. And has been for decades and decades. Uh, livestock producers around central Kentucky have been using distillers' grains before ethanol industry really in- introduced it in the Midwest. The, there were 150 dairies in each county years ago, and the bourbon industry was integral to their feeding schedules, feeding rations. You know, California claims to have the happiest cows around, but I can't imagine <laughs> a happier cow than one that's just <laughs> nomming down some bourbon mash. Yeah, so a lot of distilleries, you know, they have big dryer houses where they'll make those DDGs, dry those grains. Some of the mid-sized ones like us, we don't have a dryer house, so we have what we call whole stillage, and we give that away to farmers for cattle feed. We've got about 50 or so local farmers that we provide that free cattle feed to. We also have about a thousand acre farm that we own ourselves outside of Owensboro. We have our own cattle that we feed our stillage to, so we touch agriculture in a lot of different ways. It's interesting. One of the that's one of many aftermarket products that the bourbon industry has given birth to. You know, the other are these barrels that we talk about. You know, for a bourbon barrel, it has to be never used before. Now, all the other, you know, less superior products all around the world. <laughs> you know, like rum and tequila <laughs> and scotch are using our old bourbon barrels because they can use them a second, a third, and a fourth time. But for Kentucky bourbon, first-time barrels only. So those barrels are actually worth more after they're used than they often are paid for in, on the first time around. I know. I've bought a few of those, and I think probably everybody's bought a few of those over the years. So that's interesting. You can only use it one time. Adam Andrews, Program Director for Kentucky Corn. Talk about What's unique to Kentucky, the soil structure, the soil types? How does Kentucky corn fit into the Kentucky bourbon business from the seed to the finished product? Best way to describe our soil type is diverse. (laughs) You can cross a field field into half a dozen soil types. Uh, We don't have very square fields influenced by a lot of waterways. We've got the largest number of stream miles in continental United States in our state. One thing that I don't uh, don't know if it's been brought up quite yet, the limestone. Uh, We've got a very high limestone content. That's one thing that makes bourbon very unique. And it's one, one reason that bourbon production was settled here because we can start with limestone water and the unique filtration process and taste of limestone. The difficult corners of the field and things like that uh, make it a challenge to produce corn, sometimes compared to uh, some of our more Midwestern counterparts. The implementation of precision technology is much more difficult here. You have to have segments shut off much more quickly, or you're going to overlap on a finger of a field and things like that. So yeah, a lot of the technology to develop uh, precision technology, precision application back in um, the 90s, early 2000s, was developed here in Kentucky because we were the most difficult. That guy that developed that was hired off to another state, but we've had a lot of unique challenges. Uh, it's, it's not as simple here sometimes. We, uh, we laugh. Uh, well, John McGillicuddy laughs that uh, everybody accuses him of being able to spill a bag of seed corn and make 200 bushels in Iowa. And he, he laughs and says, we can spill seed corn on concrete and make 200 bushels in, in Iowa. 
um, we have challenges. Uh, we, we have to, to deal with slopes. Uh, no-till was invented here, we say. Some other folks try to claim that, but we know what happened. And uh, um, a lot of our state is no-till. In the 90s, in the upper 90s at some points, I think some minimum till practices have, have taken a couple of those percentage points. But uh, it's a very unique state to produce corn in. Well, again and again, we're, we're talking about relationships from the farmer to the distiller to the consumer. Laura, you, what's the relationship between the folks you represent and the folks in the distillery business in this state? The relationships between our growers and the distilleries are always unique. And we've laughed over time that every distillery, just Jacob, just so you know, we consider you all a little bit of a cagey crew, a little bit of a cagey (laughs) bunch. You don't like to share any secrets. You don't tell growers exactly what you're looking for, but you know it when you see it. But what's exciting about that is it has given our young farmers in this state some great opportunities because they're willing to go the extra mile, especially to develop a relationship. And so where you've got where they're wanting to bring that into the operation where their dad's like, yeah, it's tough to sell to those distilleries. That's a great challenge for our young farmers. It has given a lot of our young guys some greater opportunities than they, they would have had otherwise. Jacob Cole, how do you view that relationship and what makes it so special and unique for you folks? Well, I, I think we have a great relationship <laughs> <laughs> with the, uh, with the uh, farmers, the corn farmers. You know, we, uh, we, we try to work together on projects and different things. You know, we've, we've got some heirloom varieties that we work on, white corn, blue corn, organic corn. Uh, so, we, you know, we experiment, a lot of experimentation right now in the bourbon industry. But, you know, for me down in, in Western Kentucky, it's very comforting to know that we grow some of the best corn in the state. We have very fertile soils down with the Green River and the Ohio River in that area. You know, our spec is number two corn but we get number one corn because that's what they make. So uh, we've just got some superstar farmers down in our part of the state. Well, you know, it's certainly fitting that a beverage that's meant to be enjoyed with friends has such a neat history about bringing people together in other ways. You know, it's a pleasure to be here to, to sit with you here at the Fraser Kentucky History Museum and learn about the history of bourbon. But, you know, coming up next month, We're going to continue this discussion, and we're going to look at bourbon's present and its future. So you'll have to tune in again next time for the rest of this conversation. Thank you so much to Andy Trinan, Fraser Museum President and CEO, Jacob Call, Master Distiller at Green River Distilling, Laura Notes, and Adam Andrews from the Kentucky Corn Growers Association. I'm John Doggett. I'm the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. Thanks for listening. And tune in again for another episode of Wherever John May Roam. That is going to wrap up this edition of Wherever John May Roam. When this conversation continues in the next edition, we'll learn how the team at Green River Distillery has partnered with the Kentucky Corn Growers Association on Yellow Banks Bourbon, a portion of the profits from which goes to support corn research. So make sure you subscribe in your favorite app and join us again soon. Visit ncga.com to learn more or sign up for the association's email newsletter. Wherever John May Rome is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association with editing by Larry Kilgore III and produced by PodCamp Media. Branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For the National Corn Growers Association, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.